How are supply chains doing on diversity? The rise of electric trucks and more steady growth in logistics last month. Pull up a chair and join us as the editors of DC Velocity discuss these stories, as well as news and supply chain trends on this week's Logistics Matters podcast. Hi, I'm Dave Maloney. I'm the group editorial director at DC Velocity. Welcome. Logistics Matters is sponsored by Yale Materials Handling. This isn't yesterday's warehouse. Rethink what you can expect from your forklifts with Yale. The experts at Yale provide smart, connected lift trucks and solutions to help you tackle your toughest labor, safety, and productivity challenges. Visit Yale at Promat Booth S1003 or online at yale.com. As usual, our DC Velocity senior editors, Ben Ames and Victoria Kickham, will be along to provide their insights into the top stories of this week. But to begin today, earlier this week, the world recognized International Women's Day. Historically, supply chain management positions have been rather heavily male-dominated, but like many professions, we're seeing some steady change. How do women now fare in supply chain positions? To find out, here's Victoria with today's guest. Victoria? Thanks, Dave. Our guest today is Tanya Siri. She is CEO and founder of Procurious, which is a global business network for supply chain and procurement professionals. Tanya's here to talk with us about a recent survey her company did uh, conducted on gender bias in the workplace. Welcome, Tanya. Thank you very much for having me. Well, it's our pleasure. So the report I referred to is called Women in Procurement and Supply Chain Against the Odds, and it revealed that gender-based adversity is pervasive in the industry, affecting, I think it was something like three quarters of the women surveyed. Can you tell us a little bit about who you surveyed for the report and what kinds of gender-based challenges they say they're facing? Absolutely. Look, we surveyed more than 200 women. We've got 43,000 members, but 200 women came back who work in procurement and supply chain roles across the globe. Um, And they came back with some very specific and, and a little alarming feedback that when it came to the specific forms of gender-based diversity that they experienced, um, we heard about women, sorry, men taking credit for women's work for ideas, uh, learning that they're paid less than their male counterparts, um, feeling disadvantaged in the workplace because of their gender, and being asked to perform admin tasks, you know, well outside of their role. So these are just some of them, uh, and, uh, you know, I can elaborate on any of those if you would like. Yeah, that would be great. Yeah, I was going to ask you to sort of drill down and talk about some other key findings, but you, if you want to home in on some of those, those are those are some pretty surprising statistics. Well, Yeah, I think of the gender-based, you know, pay inequities that we're seeing across the globe are are really, you know, well established and acknowledged now um, that particularly, yes. So um, I think, you know, I go back to my own time when I was working in the US and I was trying to negotiate my salary. My boss just couldn't understand why he even needed more money. He said, you don't have a family, Tanya, you know, what do you spend your money on? And I had to really work to say, look, that's actually irrelevant to this conversation. You know, what we 
talk about is my role and my work. And I guess that's a little bit of unconscious bias, but just some of the challenges that women may be facing in the workplace, but also a perception that we're probably not as forward, not as great at promoting ourselves, and that you know potentially our male counterparts do seem a lot more confident and therefore um, are seen as more confident. I think uh, airtime is a big thing in meetings that women are really challenging just to have their voices heard and that's been exacerbated through online meetings. And you know, there's a number of strategies that we can work around that um, to really help women. The Obama administration for one developed this tool of echoing each other. So if one woman in a meeting says something or asks a question that other women around the table. So look, they're just a couple of things um, from the report, um, but yeah. Yeah, so can you elaborate a little bit more on that uh, in terms of strategies that maybe organizations can use to improve the situation or, or address these, these issues that you've, that you've identified? Yeah, well, with that last point, I think a lot of these issues are just being conscious that, that this is how the workplace plays out. And with that last example, I just gave one of echoing, but for, you know, in a situation where we've got a male leader with a female employee who is very, uh, very competent, but isn't speaking up in meetings, one strategy is actually to role play before the meeting. So, you know, your manager could say, hey, Tanya, I really think you should share more during meetings. Look, in the next meeting, we're going to be talking about this. I'm going to throw to you and then I want you to share. And I know that sounds really mechanical, but literally what we're trying to do here is break some really long-term uh, habits that we have in the workplace so that we actually have to be deliberate about changing that. I guess another story, you know, I'd love to share is just one that I experienced uh, recently. And, you know, these unconscious biases and the way we work, as I said, are just so ingrained, but that's because I guess we call them unconscious. But a recent big procurement conference in Europe, two days before we all turn up, there's a note that goes out that says, hey, casual dress at the conference, e.g. wear hoodies, jeans and runners. Now that might not seem too bad to most people listening, but if we think about if the dress advisory came out saying wear silk blouse, linen pants and stilettos. I think that sort of, you know, highlights the point here is that, you know, what the dress was actually saying, and of course the organisers didn't mean it, was to dress like a young male which automatically makes everyone who doesn't dress like that feel a little less included. And I think what the funny thing is, you know, throughout my whole professional life, I've actually been trying to dress like an older male. You know, I'm wearing a suit, white shirt, scarf instead of a tie. And now that I've got to a certain stage in my career, my profession's basically telling me now I need to dress like a younger man. So look, it's certainly not going to ruin people's careers or make people not turn up for conferences. But it's just sort of the fabric of, you know, what we're working in at the moment. And just, you know, a couple of small examples that once again, just make people feel not as included as others. 
<laughs> yeah, those are interesting examples for sure. Um, were there any, um, you know, I said, I want to ask positives, but, you know, this is just like, as you say, it's the way it is in many cases. But anything from the survey that sort of reflected, you know, the strides women have made in the workplace over the past oh, few generations? I say that not knowing, you know, the questions you asked in particular, but anything positive you can you can oh, mention. Absolutely. I mean, you know, we're now at a point where there's, you know, almost 50 percent of women are in in senior and managerial roles in our in the procurement and supply chain profession. So I imagine if we did this survey five or ten years ago, that number would be nothing like that. And let's face it, our profession is awesome. We get to touch so many things. And overall, it is a well-paid profession. So we have 50% of women consuming most of the roles to that level um, across the globe. So that's great news. I guess the opportunity is, of course, for us to break through that glass ceiling and then start to occupy some of the more senior roles. But I really think awareness of the issue and doing a few things and putting very, being very deliberate about strategies will really help. How does the um, data you uncovered factor into the talent issue that many supply chain companies are facing? This problem of gender bias seems to complicate an already challenging environment for uh, recruiting and retaining people. Absolutely. And I mean, with the global talent shortage in full swing, what better time than now to really take check and make sure that we're doing all that we can to attract and retain women in our workplace? This goes from ensuring your job descriptions and job ads aren't gender biased, to pay scales, training and development on the job, carers leave policies and overall flexibility. Really everything needs an overhaul, um, but it's a huge advantage for companies to have a competitive advantage in this talent market. It seems like so much of this is just about sort of listening better, respecting each other, just in general. Is there anything else about what you uncovered um, or about this issue in general that you wanted to share with our audience? Yeah, look, I'm just surprised, you know, that we're still talking about this and I'm sure everyone listening uh, is sort of the same, you know, really is so, we're so advanced. But, right. you know, the survey has shown that um, you know, there are some still some serious challenges and hurdles, but you're right, awareness will help and being deliberate. And I guess from my perspective, you know, I'm concerned because, you know, let's call it out, a rich white woman of a certain age and certain level of success seems so really funny to uh, describe myself that way, but there you go. I still feel discriminated against, you know, from time to time. So that just makes me concerned what's happening to younger, more diverse and less experienced women in our profession. And if we don't get it right within our own organisations, then what's happening with our suppliers around the world who are employing women? You know, that's what worries me a lot. So we've really got to start today, break some of these habits, address the issue, and then that will have huge flow on effects for all women in our supply chains. I think that's good advice. Uh, Tanya, thank you so much for being our guest today. We really appreciate your insight. Well, thank you. It's been really fun joining you. Thank you. We have been talking with Tanya Siri of Procurious. Back to you, Dave. Thank you, Tanya and Victoria. Now let's take a look at some of the other supply chain news from the week. And Ben, you wrote this week about the steadily increasing numbers of electric vehicles being produced for last mile deliveries. Can you share some details? 
Yeah, glad to, Dave. Uh, we often, of course, write about electric trucks in the magazine, uh, about their benefits, like cutting fuel costs, obviously, uh, and reducing emissions related to that. And then also there's less maintenance required due to the much simpler engine. Uh, but there are also drawbacks. Um, you know, there's a higher cost than a diesel model uh, front to buy it. Uh, and also, of course, you have to buy new electrical infrastructure to charge those batteries. So for various reasons, uh, there's not yet broad adoption um, of big electric class eight semis in the freight market. But in recent weeks, we've seen a real jump in a slightly different application, which is the smaller models, class four or class six trucks that are used for last mile delivery routes. Uh, and that appears to be a better use case for a number of reasons. Uh, the distances are sh typically shorter. They usually drive set routes and of course they return to their depot or to their DC frequently to reload and recharge. Uh, so as an example, uh, this week we heard that Purolator, which is that Canadian parcel carrier, said it will spend a billion dollars, that's with a B, over seven years to electrify uh, about 60% of its fleet. So, you know, that's no longer just a demonstration program uh, of, of bringing electric trucks on board. Uh, we're talking about, in that case, 100 all-electric vehicles this year, um, another 150 in 2024, and a total of actually uh, 3,500 of them for the whole plan. Yeah, well, those numbers definitely appear to be much bigger than your typical pilot programs we've seen when companies just want to test the new technologies. Uh, did they say who the manufacturer of these vehicles will be? Uh, good question. Uh, whenever you see uh, demand jump like that, someone's got to actually make them. Um, they did give specifics, uh, and that was interesting to me too, because they're ordering these uh, pure later is from three different automakers. Uh, that includes, there's the Ford E-Transit, uh, Motive Power, uh, Epic 4, and Bright Drop Zevo 600. So Motive, Motive Power is the smallest of those uh, three providers. They're a California startup. Uh, they were founded about 14 years ago, uh, but they've been providing some vehicles all along to some of the particularly uh, industrial food and beverage provider companies, again, serving those urban routes. Bright Drop, um, people not, might not have heard of, but they're a unit of General Motors uh, that GM founded in 2021 specifically to make vehicles for logistics and delivery. And then Ford, of course, obviously a huge manufacturer. Uh, and we actually saw that they got an even bigger order than this one uh, for that same e-transit model uh, just last month because the U.S. Postal Service ordered almost 10,000 units of those. Uh, and there might be more to come because USPS is refreshing its entire fleet. So again, the, these numbers are you know, far beyond the testing stage. It really it looks like we're at a point now where it'll be an everyday experience uh, to see an electric truck bringing that next parcel to your house. Right. And I think it's only a matter of time. A lot will depend, I think, on how fast infrastructure can be built. And we see others adopting the technology and finding success with it. Thanks, Ben. Glad to. And Victoria, you have the latest monthly figures from the Logistics Managers Report. What do they say about the health of the industry? Yeah, that's right, Dave. So um, economic activity in the logistics industry continues to slow down from the rapid growth rates we saw during the pandemic. Researchers for the monthly Logistics Managers Index Report, or LMI as, as we call it, said this week that growth across the industry slowed in February compared to January, actually slipping back to uh, December levels. 
This means that demand for logistics services remains strong because we're in growth territory, but that it's slowing from the record levels we saw for about two years. February's LMI measured 56.6, which is down from an all-time high index reading of 64.3. Um, to put that in perspective, um, an LMI reading above 50 indicates growth across the transportation and warehousing sectors, and a reading below 50 indicates contraction. And just to give you that comparison for 2020 to 2022, Two that I mentioned, we saw readings as high as the mid-70s, which the LMI researchers characterized as very strong growth. That ran from about mid-2020 through last spring. Um, and these numbers, I should say, come from a monthly survey of logistics managers nationwide. So does this really mean that the industry is getting back to more typical historical growth patterns? It seems that way, but there's still um, some sluggishness on the transportation side. The LMI's transportation prices index fell about six percentage points to reach a new low in February. Uh, the prices index started to contract um, last summer in July of 2022 and, and hasn't come back. Uh, this essentially means that demand for transportation services is low and capacity is high, so the market continues to be tough for carriers and we've not uh, reached that hoped for uh, freight recovery yet. Um, on the positive side, warehousing capacity opened up in February. After more than two years of contracting, that index grew more than 10 points to push it into the expansion category last month. And that means that where more warehousing space is available, which um, is welcome news following many months of tight capacity. Uh, warehousing prices and inventory costs are still very high, though. Uh, so the re researchers said it will be a while before that added capacity will have um, a positive effect on the market overall. So that's pretty much where we sit uh, today. Yeah, I guess it is a start to getting back to normal, at least we can look at it mm -hmm. that way. Thanks, Victoria. You're welcome. We encourage listeners to go to dcvelocity.com for more on these and other supply chain stories. And check out the podcast notes section for some direct links on the topics that we discussed today. And our thanks to Tanya Siri of Curious for being our guest. We welcome your comments on this topic and our other stories. You can email us at podcast at dcvelocity.com. We also encourage you to subscribe to Logistics Matters at your favorite podcast platform. Our new episodes are uploaded on Fridays. Speaking of subscribing, check out our sister podcast series. It's called Supply Chain in the Fast Lane. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And a reminder that Logistics Matters is sponsored by Yale. From proven robotic lift trucks, to industry-leading operator assist technology, unlock the full potential of your warehouse with their next-generation lift truck solutions. Visit Yale at Promad booth S1003 or online at Yale.com. That's Y-A-L-E.com. We'll be back again next week with another edition of Logistics Matters. Be sure to join us. Until then, have a great week.